Hello, I'm Panel Camp, and this is a special edition of On Tap Theater and Performance Studies podcast. I am delighted today to welcome two very distinguished colleagues to the podcast. Um, Tracy C. Davis is Barbara Professor of Performing Arts at Northwestern University. Um, Tracy, I have to ask how things are going at Northwestern with the pandemic. I think you're you're in your winter quarter. Has the academic schedule been adjusted or rearranged to to cope with the pandemic at Northwestern? It's been attenuated a little bit, but for the most part, activities are going well, and all almost all theater courses are being taught remotely. Okay, I've wondered about that. Yeah, here we are. Um, most of our classes are in a hybrid format, so that you can do everything. Um, uh, from remote if you need to, but we've had we have a lot of in-person classes as well. Um, and I'm joined as well by Peter W. Marks, who is chair of theater and media studies at the University of Cologne and is director of its theater studies collection. Uh, Peter, I can't resist asking you uh, to say a bit about how the pandemic has affected your work um, in Germany. Are you employed in, are you doing mostly remote classes? Is there a, a mix of different modalities? We are only doing remote classes uh, for the second term. It's almost the end of the winter term and it's kind of difficult that for example we took in a new generation of students who never entered the campus and whom we've only seen as small talking pictures on zoom so uh, we really hope to see them in 3d in person uh, somewhere during this year indeed yeah it's it's going to be a year that we're all going to remember um, uh, for a variety of reasons well I was so glad that uh, the two of you were willing to come on the podcast and discuss this new volume that you've edited and which has just been published. Um, I just got an email a couple of days ago from the WashU library uh, announcing that our library copy has arrived. Um, so you have edited the Routledge Companion to Theater and Performance uh, Historiography, and it's a very impressive book. Uh, you have contributions by 23 authors including yourselves. Um, and these contributors are from several different countries, so it provides an international perspective, um, which to my mind is one of the things that distinguishes it from some comparable titles uh, in, in recent years. I'm thinking of um, Interpreting the Theatrical Past, edited by uh, Tom Postlewaite and Bruce McConaughey, and uh, theater, his theater Historiography, Critical Interventions, edited by Henry Bile and, and Scott Magelson. Um, and the book is dedicated to the central question, what is specific to the historiography of theater and performance? So I've read the introduction and looked at some of the chapters, and I have you know, many questions that I want to ask you. I don't think we'll have time to get to everything that I want to ask you. But to begin, I wondered if you would perhaps each tell the listeners a bit about the origin of the project, either in terms of how you decided to collaborate on this or um, and or the intellectual goals behind it. I can't remember how many years ago it was that Peter and I met at a conference in Munich and had been reading each other's work and met over the breakfast table in a small hotel and were excited about the prospects of more conversations. And very much to Peter's credit, he made years and years of conversations possible. Um, so five years ago, was it five, Peter? Yes. I think five years ago, 
I was a resident scholar at a Humboldt Fellowship at the University of Cologne, and in conjunction with the International Federation for Theatre Research Conference in Stockholm, we were kind of launching on this idea of what, what shall we do. Routledge approached me to edit a collection or handbook or companion on theatre historiography, and I said, no, that's not at all interesting. Peter and I talked about it. We decided what would be interesting is theatre and performance. So specifically to think about historiography in relation to the different critical paradigms and interpretive paradigms for performance in our respective academic cultures and to bring in colleagues from many parts of the world to help us set an agenda for historiography for the coming decades, to think critically and reflexively about historiography as it's been advanced and and understood in really compelling ways, but also to bring it up to date and, and to think about what it can give us, you know, what we can do with it, how we can address some of the key interpretive issues in historical research, and speak back to some of the problems that we've respectively experienced by trying to be historians who engage with other kinds of history and to bring those conversations to the fore, some of the frustrations that result, but also some of the very productive things that come of it. I think I, I would like to add two uh, further aspects to um, the development of this project. The first one is clearly the experience uh, Tracy and I had uh, since 2013 when we started an international summer school uh, co-sponsored by Northwestern and University of Cologne uh, as part of the difficulty of developing a language for writing history across different academic cultures. Um, and clearly to see how contingent paradigms sometimes bar us from understanding different concepts, um, historical concepts, but also different historical phenomena. And uh, I think really what made this project so special is that we um, took an effort along with the contributing editors and all the other contributors to the volume to meet in person. So. Uh, we devised a schedule of three chamber conferences where all authors uh, gathered and we were able to discuss the contributions at a very early stage. Um, and we also had two extensive meetings in Evanston with the contributing editors, uh, sort of discussing the project at the beginning, but also uh, once the first contributions uh, had come back and we were really able to discuss them properly. And I think this attempt of reaching across different academic cultures, reaching across certain theoretical paradigms is really what makes the book special. Indeed. Um, so one of the things that I noticed in reading the introduction is that, and and the organizational scheme of the chapters, which I will ask you to talk about, um, is that you don't find uh, direct engagements in the introduction with some of the questions that you might expect in a volume on um, theater or theater and performance historiography, periodization, how to deal with different national literatures, genres, methodology, um, epistemological concerns, although these matters are dealt with in a series of richly 
detailed examples. I'm, I'm thinking of the um, St. Georg Tivoli Theater in, in Hamburg and, and the Greco-Roman Amphitheater in Sicily, which are um, the subjects of, of some of the sections in the introduction, and particularly interesting to me because those are outdoor um, architectural entities as opposed to a perform a discrete performance tradition or a particular artist. Um, but instead, the main focus of the introduction conceptually is the elaboration of a set of concepts that I believe are meant to ground theater and performance as categories in a rather novel way. So you present critical media history as a paradigm for approaching past theatrical events and and uh, also a, a larger scope of events and phenomena than just what we might think of as theater. Um, and you refer to um, um, these several categories that, that sort of organize the chapters, uh, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But I wondered if you might say a bit about what you see as the advantages of this way of understanding the subject matter of theater and performance history, of uh, critical media history, um, and the, the sort of conceptual triangle that you put out of um, aesthesis apparatus and materiality and practices. Why is the the notion of critical media history, media ecologies, something that is advantageous to a theater or performance historiographer? I think the idea of critical media history kind of is related to also the question of theater as part of cultural history in a broader context. So what, what we attempted to um, try to sketch is how could we write theater or about theater or performance, not with assuming that we know what theater or performance is, but in relation to other cultural practices that sort of are related or sometimes opposed um, to what is called and framed as theater, and to develop a historiographical model that would focus on formatting and transformating experiences. And the idea of this triangle sort of is meant to be a heuristic approach that will allow us to question also silent assumptions that we sometimes carry along about what theater is, what performance is, um, but that might in fact be historically and culturally contingent. So in the attempt of not limiting ourselves to a single paradigm, we try to situate theater as part of a larger cultural process as part of a larger uh, cultural formation and therefore we felt that it's not possible to take theater as a point of departure but kind of as the term that is evolving through cultural processes which we aim to describe. So I think we know how to quibble about periodization. We know how to quibble about national theater cultures but for most of human history, there hasn't been nations. And there's been a very pluralistic sense of periodization. Theater practices don't necessarily in, in any way correlate to these concepts. So rather than picking up on that and um, um, taking issue with it, we decided to just go in a completely different direction. And to think about how performance as a taxonomic category that's emerged in the latter part of the 20th century and had tremendous impact on a number of different 
disciplines, is constituent of theater, and is a and that theater is a way to communicate the presence of performance in human culture, to think about how theater and performance are mutually constitutive, and that there's a symbiotic relationship between them and between other kinds of media, between books as media, between optical devices and optical traditions uh, as, as media, so that theater uses a whole range of potential circulating discourses and circulating technologies and circulating forms of conveying understanding and uses these very permissively and recombinantly and compellingly. And that does not have a periodization except insofar as if you think that media and is, is dependent on a kind of technological um, set of innovations which it is, um, but even then there's a lot of recursive, re recursive referentiality to earlier practices, as well as in the theater, sometimes prospective referentiality to practices that don't yet exist, but which can be mimicked. So that's, that's a facet of, of what really interests us and which something that we see um, that is not bounded by nation or region. So that's really interesting. Um, one of my um, points of interest here was, you know, before sitting down to read, I thought, oh, interesting critical media history. So perhaps the idea here is that theater and performance studies could be remapped as part of a, a very broad category of media. Um, and while the connotations one might tend to bring to that are new media, digital media, um, screenal technologies, all of the sort of contemporary and modern apparatuses that um, I think you could say are, are, are transforming um, cultural practices in a, in a large scale way. Um, you could argue that uh, folklore, oral presentation, um, any sort of uh, manipulation of an environment where embodied communication is facilitated is a category of media. So that's really compelling. Um, there's a great section in the in the introduction where you talk about the tension or the dichotomy, I might call it the confusion between theater and performance as these concepts are deployed um, in our discipline. Do you believe that by um, uh, putting uh, the concept of media in such a prominent place that um, it, that is beneficial and that it helps in a way cut through or um, uh, resist entanglements with familiar debates about the difference between theater and performance? Do you, do you see media as a sort of um, more useful, very inclusive term that subsumes theater and performance? In part, this is a, this is a historiographic and historicizing claim to say that the entanglement with media is not exclusively a contemporary entanglement, but that theater has been entangled with its contemporaneous media for all time. And so part of, part of what I've seen in the debates about the introduction of screen technologies, the introduction of 
um, point of view camera work in in post dramatic theater and, and that sort of thing is a claim to the new and I think for the most part theater makes claims to the old um, in terms of the pragmatics of finding ways to make compelling events for viewing, seeing, and so on. That, in other words, we can not just say, here's a breach with the past, but we can say that this kind of co-constitutive involvement in media makes theater a medium amongst other media but perhaps uniquely a medium that draws very permissively on anything it can, it can attach to. And so to try to separate it from media, as happens very often in the American Academy, and instead to look at the model, thinking about where Peter's located, where media studies and theater are one department, and then additionally, part of that department is this enormously rich and provocative archive where we can see again and again how theater, uh, theater makers have engaged media. It was, for me, paradigm shifting and extremely helpful in making sense of the disciplinary debates about folklore and performance, ethnographic methods and performance, etc., etc. If I sort of may briefly follow up on that, I, I think it's also important <clears throat> to see that media historiography has a comparable problem. Um, very often it focuses on the idea of the apparatus as the conditio sine qua non, sort of that starts a history. Um, we just took in uh, a very famous and large collection of optical devices, the collection of Werner Nekes, and large parts of it are framed as pre-cinematographic devices. But from a theater historian's point of view, these are also part of theater and performance history, uh, be it the camera obscura, be it uh, the, the magic lantern. And I think if we really want to understand how these forms of art and forms of media affect cultural development, we need a joint umbrella uh, to look at them together. And I think terms like pre-cinematographic historiography, uh, or history, sorry, are really misleading to, to that extent, because it is part of a larger history of media ecology. And I think this might be one of the advantages of the term media ecology, because it does not only emphasize the entanglement of different forms of art and media, but it also allows us to think in terms of diversity from the scratch, in terms of different quote-unquote climate zones in which um, the same apparatus, the same technique might develop in a different direction uh, from one another. So I think this really is a promising perspective um, and it will bring theater and performance studies into new dialogues, we hope. I just want to say that that also resituates theater in a different sensibility about marketplaces. And for example, in the European tradition, has us radically challenged the idea of a popular theater and an elite theater. Because if you're looking at how these devices circulate and who has access to them, it's not divided that way. Mm -hmm. 
You know, the, the example of the optical devices you've acquired um, reminds me of, of a book that I thought of in, in reading your introduction, uh, Jonathan Crary's Techniques of the Observer, mm-hmm. which is, you know, from the perspective, I believe, I actually am not certain of his disciplinary position. I imagine it's art history or um, what we would think of as media studies. Mm-hmm. But from that, from the point of view of that book, these um, apparatuses and this sort of technological, um, uh, these technological developments can be seen as part of a history of spectating practices. So it, you know, in the in the conceptual triangle that you put in the introduction, aesthesis is what stands for spectating, right? What we would think of as sort of audience side or, or reception um, practices. Um, you have the apparatus and the materiality, which is the environment and the materials that create the, I suppose, the other side of that operation, what the spectating is of um, physically, materially. And then you have practices, which is the art making, right? The, the, the creative practices, I suppose, as they're uh, distinct from um, the material facets of it. So do you feel as though this that type of um, configuration of concepts um, opens itself up to writing histories of subjective practices or audience practices, interpretive practices that don't get you mired or don't get you sort of stuck in um, conceiving of what the object is all the time? I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think sort of the, this triangle sort of allows us to describe the formation of subjective positions that sort of lead to certain kinds of spectating. And also, it's not limited, for example, to Western concept of subjectivity and Western concept of spectating. Um, for example, if you look at a concept like remediation by Walter Grusin that is so popular and so much referenced, it still is based on the idea that there's an internal logic of media and art representation that aims for realism. But this is only true for Western, the Western tradition. Uh, if you look uh, at the Indian practices in the 16th and 17th century, it's very clear that they were able to produce realism because they have learned it from European travelers, but they programmatically choose a different way. So I think if we really want to be able to have a model to write connected histories uh, in the term of Supramanyam's uh, concept, so that it's not a global history as history after globalization, but a history of different contingent cultural contexts, uh, this model really would allow to fine-tune to differences and to understand processes of negotiation. Well, I'm curious a bit about the um, the process that you went through with your collaborators. There's so many chapters, so many different um, uh, in, you know instances of, of subject matter that can be discussed under this rubric. Did you find in your successive meetings that your authors were changing? Uh, what they thought they might write about for this project, that perhaps they came to it initially and thought, oh, 
here's this draft or a, a bit from prior research that makes sense in this context, but then after your meetings, new topics emerged, um, things took on a different direction? Because it seems to me that that might actually illustrate some of the, the stakes of what you're arguing and how it might um, change the field uh, more broadly if, if this were adopted in a widespread way. Very emphatically, panel, because earlier in our conversation, Peter mentioned the chamber conferences. And the three chamber conferences that took place at the University of Washington in Seattle, at UC Santa Barbara, and at Cologne were subsets of authors. And we asked all authors to opt into one of these. So these were like the small graduate classes we wished we had, right? And that uh, it was it was like having a, a a super intense, stimulating graduate school experience over the course of three weekends. That's because the authors circulated very short pieces, typically four to six pages, and sometimes it was schematic thoughts. Sometimes it was well-reasoned argument. But but we workshopped these, and we we gave every author the benefit of every other scholar's presence to think about them, as well as the reflections of the contributing editors, a subset of whom were always at at these meetings too. But it was an opportunity to very safely and very um, um, boldly explore ideas and see how they land in a way that we don't typically experience in a conference. So Peter and I felt that this was an extremely productive means in order to ensure that the authors were well supported, that they were thinking about their ideas, and sometimes they did take a turn in another direction after a chamber conference. Uh, but but that direction was much more historiographically rooted because, again, we have a tendency to talk about the history and not the historiography. And the note that we persistently gave at all stages was explicate the terms of the historiography. I think that's one thing that also really sets this volume apart from some others that have come out more recently, Claire Cochran's, for example, because it's really focused on the historiographic stakes, it matters rather less where and when the history is situated because we're looking for the takeaway to think about how history is made, how history is told, rather than the stakes of getting an explanation right about a particular phenomenon event, performance, whatever, located in place and time. I, I recall that one of our future contributors, when we first approached him, sort of really declined from the, from the scratch because he said he was, quote-unquote, out-companioned. And I think the, the series of the chamber conferences really allowed for a totally different mode of collaboration. Um, in many cases, contributors would come with... Uh, pieces they have been working on or uh, that gave glimpses to larger research projects and they discovered through the conversations that there were different historiographical uh, problems or concepts underlying Um, and I think this is what made it so fruitful 
And again, and this is not a trivial challenge to reach out across different academic cultures uh, and sort of to really develop an understanding um, why some aspects are more important to a scholar from a certain background than it might for oneself. Um, and I think this is what made these or what makes these contributions so so interesting and so going beyond the specific example they might address is that they really come out of a dialogue that um, is um, fueled by the attempt to understand across different um, regions and across, across different academic cultures. So I, I want to ask you one more question, um, which is selfish because it's connected to research that I'm working on presently. But I, I noticed in the introduction, um, the engagement with the the origins of contemporary performance study uh, performance studies in sociology and cultural anthropology, and the question of um, theater and performance as social phenomena. Um, I think, Tracy, I can't remember if this is from the, the Bloomsbury anthology, but I remember something that you wrote um, recently about the uniquely um, uh, the, the unique social intensivity of, of theater as a practice. Um, and as I've been reading performance theory and some of the social theory that's in its background, I've come to believe that in the 21st century, and in, in certainly in American performance studies, that the uh, background of social theory, um, uh, especially the really large influence of, of Emile Durkheim in the early 20th century, has sort of become submerged. And there are good reasons for this. Um, but to my mind, I, I, I find myself picking up on moments in scholarship in our field where you can see sociological stakes emerging or an interest in perhaps returning to the questions of what um, cultural phenomena might tell us about uh, society as a system or whether or not we can recover some of the use of some of these older concepts about what we think the the broader human impact is uh, or patterns might be in in theater and and performance as phenomena so I'm wondering if either of you would expand a little bit on the discussion of the the social dimension of theater and performance that you believe this intervention allows you to pursue. What is it about uh, critical media history that makes the social facets of this activity clearer or or fresh for us? Well, thanks, panel, for mentioning the cultural history of theater. Um, multi-volume set that uh, Chris Baum and I edited. This, this project has given me an opportunity to reflect on some of the discoveries of that project, in part because it, for me it was such a necessary invitation to think across millennia um, and to, to return to a lot of issues that one could say um, surface at certain points, but then arguably, you know, if you look at it another way, are more perennial. I think that the the preoccupation of sociology with with thinking about the the, the cultural problems 
is allied to something that Peter and I articulate in the introduction to this book, which is about performance genealogy. And, and we recognize that while theater is imbricated in and with culture, I think the argument we try to make is that theater is not contrary to what certain kinds of, say, social historians might say. Theater is not interested in the little stuff of culture. It's so easy to set theater aside and say, well, that's just play. You know, that's just uh, culture rearticulating itself and it really, you know, it's entertainment, it's, it's, it's to the side. But instead, that, that theater is a critical stance about little and big stuff in culture and often putting little and big stuff in relation to each other. So it's hard to imagine a situation where, for example, theater is not showing what gets sidelined in culture and how those processes happen. This is you know, why it's important to return to different repertoires, to see how culture has done this, or see how cultures have done this, and to think about how critical stances are taken so that these representations through various theatrical and performative forms and genres and traditions are showing us how politics is central to these practices. That, I mean, this is something that as theater and performance historians we want to claim, right? Because we want to show how we're interested in the stuff that matters. It's not a hard claim because even when theater in its organized form is the most ephemeral, that ephemerality is still reflecting back on the preoccupations of the time. And even the fact that certain things can seem sidelined in it shows us a mindset and allows us to have ways to both substantiate the way mindsets worked at a given time and place, but also across times and places. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that I find really compelling in the historicizing facet of these practices that that these performance forms are a kind of aperture into seeing how seeing hearing listening thinking feeling uh, sensing um, the the cultural preoccupations and what is suppressed and what is fostered and where pluralism is represented and 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 how. Well, I can't thank you enough for making your time available to, to talk about this project and for organizing and and editing um, and contributing to this book. It's really interesting. I think it's going to make a big impact in the field, and I hope listeners will, will get themselves a copy. Um, so, uh, Tracy, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 